everybody. Uh, today is December 6th, and my name is Ben Charles. This is your episode 265 of the At Percussion podcast. With me, as always, are my co-host, Casey Cangelosi. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Doing well. How are you, Casey? Good, thanks. Uh, Casey, you've had some excellent recordings you've put out of your students as of late. Congratulations on those. Thank you. Yeah, it turned out, you know, we had some time with COVID. It's interesting what you can get done without concerts hanging over your head. I know several other people have had that opinion too, but yeah, it held true this semester for sure. Yeah. And then Ksenia Kaminovich, as always. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I am uh, truly impressed with your baking skills yet again. Uh, and I just wanted to announce that I'm moving into your kitchen uh, in a week. So. Yeah, those didn't, those didn't look real. I thought you just grabbed a photo of some no, freaking no, cinnamon buns or whatever. Me. Well, I've, I've told Ksenia that she'll, she's going to be a guest artist sooner or later. I told her she would get the VIP treatment that Casey got with my, with my cooking. And uh, as always, uh, Carly Vina, happy birthday, Carly. Yay, thanks, Ben. What could be better than recording the podcast on your birthday? Yeah. <laughs> Carly is 25 years old today. Congratulations, oh, yeah. Carly. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Well, well, you know, actually, we usually do um, history, you know, with what happened this day in music history on our release date. But um, for the record, on our recording date this year, it's my birthday. Also, I'm proud to share the same birthday as another wonderful percussionist, Alan Abel. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very nice. All the greats. Right, right. What a good day. It's a good day to be born. Well, Carly, since you mentioned some history, today is January 7th. What happened in history on January 7th? Or sorry, sorry our release date is January 7th. What happened on January 7th in history? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's a it's a very good history day, actually, in, in music, I think. Um, January 7th, 1955 is the day that Marian Anderson became the first Black person to ever sing a leading role at the Metropolitan Opera. This was her Met debut. She had already had a really distinguished performing career spanning decades at this point. She had given recitals on the Met stage, like something like seven or eight of them as a, as a rental, but not as an official part of the company. Um, and she actually debuted with the New York Philharmonic 30 years before this in 1925. But in 1955 is when she premiered with the Met. Um, she was really well known in her concert repertoire for performing leader. European art song, um, Negro spirituals, and even actually seemed to avoid opera throughout her career. Um, and it's reported that opera companies in Paris, in Geneva, in Moscow, and also the National Negro Opera Company in the US had all courted her and tried to get her to, to um, you know, be a part of their company, but to no avail. She always seemed more comfortable on the concert stage and also had said that she lacked the dramatic training that's necessary for opera. Um, on top of this, she was also a contralto, and there are not too many main roles for contralto in the standard opera repertoire. Um, so, but aside from performing on the concert stage, Marian Anderson is actually really well known for her 1939 concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Um, this was a response to the Daughters of the American Revolution who had forbidden her from using Constitution Hall as a venue based solely on her skin color. So she decided she'll just give a public concert for 75,000 people from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial kind of in protest. 
Um, interestingly enough, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. happened to be in the audience at this concert. And later, Marian Anderson actually sang at the March on Washington in 1963, where MLK Jr. gave his very famous I Have a Dream speech. So I thought that was nice to learn about. This is one of the biggest things that she was known for. Um, in 1955, the Met was definitely breaking boundaries with this casting and it, it paved the way for so many black vocalists later, including including Grace Bumbry, Leontine Price and Jesse Norman, just to name a few. Um, but in, in a lot of ways, the decision could be criticized because the Met really played it safe. Um, for one, the role that she sang in her debut was Ulrika from Unbalo and Mascara by Verdi. And this character is kind of a fortune telling witch that Verdi specifies in the score should be black, should be portrayed as black. Um, but common practice at that time was for white women to play Ulrika and darken their faces. Um, so they gave her this role that was meant to be portrayed as a black woman anyway. Um, and it's kind of a supporting role. Um, also, according to an article that I found published by WQXR, New York Public Radio, just a few years ago, the Mets director at the time, Rudolph Bing, made sure that Anderson would be working with um, a conductor that she had worked with before, Dimitri Metropolis. Um, so knowing that that the collaboration would kind of be safe and, and workable and everybody would be okay with it. Um, and also, it's reported that he kept the board members in the dark. They didn't know she was going to be cast until after the contract was signed and they couldn't do anything about it anyway. Um, so anyway, regardless of all of this, it's a it's a very big deal to be the first black person um, to perform as, as a part of the Met Opera. Um, it was groundbreaking and it paved the way for so many people to come and to kind of keep all of this in perspective. Also, 1955, when Marian Anderson made her debut was only one year after uh, the Supreme Court ruling Brown versus Board of Education, of course, um, the ruling that segregation of schools was unconstitutional. So. Think about you know the timeline of everything that happened there. So that's a nice nice thing. January seventh, nineteen fifty five, Marian Anderson debuted at the Met. I had one fun fact I read to add, and that is that that performance she was denied at Constitution Hall. She got the the other one at the at the Lincoln Memorial because Eleanor Roosevelt who was a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, the DAR, she resigned in protest and instead set Marianne Anderson up with this much bigger profile gig. And I guess later the DAR invited her back and she was received really well and, and some years later. I didn't know that, that's very cool. Thanks, Casey. Yeah, thank oh, you. Well, it's so nice to hear of Marian Anderson using literally her voice uh, to, to make a change in the world. And our guest artist today is someone that has done quite the same thing. And on episode 187 with John Lane, I asked a question about Alan Adi and John just said, well, you should have him on podcast himself and, and ask him. <laughs> so it's so nice to welcome today Alan Adi to the podcast. Alan is a Percussive Arts Society Hall of Fame member with Percussion Group Cincinnati, his very famous chamber group that he is a founder of. In addition to his work with Percussion Group Cincinnati, he presents The Innocence, which is a social, excuse me, social justice advocacy effort regarding wrongfully imprisoned inmates with John Lane. Alan has worked with such venerated composers as John Cage, Herbert Brune, and Frederick Shevsky. So please welcome to the podcast, Alan Adi. Hi, what, what took you guys so long? 
Yeah. <laughs> we had to get we had to we had to practice. We needed a hundred yeah. more to practice. <laughs> That's what I was telling myself. Yeah. Yeah. We have a, a a very long list of of hopeful guests and you've been on it for quite a while. So welcome to the podcast. And Casey, I think you have a little uh souvenir of Alan's past to to show us. Well, yeah, once again I have to thank my predecessor Bill Rice for leaving his awesome record collection. I've shown this on the show before, but this is the Black Earth Percussion Group album. It's an actual record. So record is this thing that kind of looks like a CD, but I don't even think y'all know what CDs are anymore. So just <laughs> it's a thing that played music and it's uh what what Al 72? Is that when this is? 72 and um I think um, thanks to COVID, that my hair is actually longer now than it was um, then. So, you know, what, what I think about, like, attractive-looking dudes, it's this. It's this here. I don't know why people don't. <laughs> is that Black Earth Percussion Group or the rock band Kansas? It's hard. To <laughs> but I love this. I've shown, I've shown this book from the inside before. It's really cool. You get little little i don't know you get little excerpts of the score inside and i don't know it just seems like this <clears throat> back, back in the day when when composers were still actually writing their scores themselves with pens and pencils and graph paper yeah it's really it's really beautiful stuff i have shown it on the show before long ago but i mean it's just it's really 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 neat what's in this in this record how did this, um, I mean, gosh, I don't even know where to start. There's so many questions we could ask about this record, but geez, I don't know, dude. What, what, is there maybe something you could share with us about making this record or I don't know, any fun, any fun stories behind how this happened? I mean, it must've been such an exciting time. I could share this, you know, um, Carl Palmer, the drummer of Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Um, if you've heard of that group, I don't remember what it sounds like, but I think they're extremely famous. That guy owes me $5 still. Um, still. <laughs> He's being called out right now. <laughs> well, and with, in, with inflation, that's probably $9. Or He's actually the next guest, so we'll ask him. <laughs> um, yeah, um, somehow, <clears throat> when, when the album came out, um, I, I, people heard about it, you know, people in different, you know, interesting musical circles. And um, we got, uh, I think, a letter from from his management, from Emerson, Lake and Palmer's management. And the management says, um, Carl Palmer has heard about this album and he, he, would, he really wants to have a copy. Um, so the other guys in the group said, well, I mean, th this is, this is, like the most famous thing that's happened to us so far. This is, you know, this is really great. Of course, we have to send this to Carl Palmer. And I said, this is like one of the most famous rock drummers in the world right now. He can afford it. I'm sending him a bill. I'm putting a bill for five dollars in the <laughs> album, which I, the other guys were pissed off, and I put a bill for five dollars in, um, and we never got our five dollars. <laughs> what, what's a what's a pissed off Mike Udow like? I want to see. I want to see that. I can't imagine it. <clears throat> Actually, I don't think he. I, well, that's just it. The others all thought it was it was fine to just you know that we should just be nice guys and send it. I mean, I wanted to be a nice guy, but I um, I was the one who was grumpy about. Sure, get your five dollars. Do, do you know how many? Do you know how many copies are out there? 
Well, um, no, I no, I didn't know. I don't know. Um, here's another more recent story about that. Um, so, <clears throat> Glenn Kochi was in in town playing. Uh, this is maybe this is already five or more years ago, um, <clears throat> playing at the Contemporary Arts Center, and I and I'm. I don't think I I don't think I recognized him. I'm 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 embarrassed to say. Okay, I wasn't. So maybe it was ten years ago or something. Anyway, we were both at a rehearsal. We were we we were at, sitting watching a, a dress rehearsal of something else that was going to be on this Contemporary Arts Center show. <clears throat> and I leaned and so there's this guy sitting next to me, and I had some comment about what was going on, and I leaned over and just said to him whatever my comment was, made some wise crack about, you know, the people on stage, um, just for the fun of it. Um, and he says to me, well, aren't you Alan Adi? And I said, um, uh, uh, yeah, sure. And um, he said, sure. I, I, I mean, if, and he said, if I'd known I was going to see you, I would have, I would have brought my, my copy of the album for you to autograph. Um, and, and I um, I said, well, you know, we were on tour just a couple, uh, a couple of years previous to that. <clears throat> and I always go into used bookstores and I went into this used bookstore in maybe Missoula, Montana or some, some Bozeman, something like that out there. And I'm paging through, you know, these bins of LPs and I came across the Black Earth LP. Um, so I pulled it out, I autographed it and I put it back in. Um, and um, sir, you're gonna have to pay for that, <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, sir. <laughs> and um, and so Glenn says, Well, how much were they selling it for? And I said, well, I guess 50 cents, I don't know, probably 50 cents. And he says, Geez, I paid a hundred bucks for mine. Wow, cool. <laughs> um, and, yeah, Gary and Rick and Mike and I. I definitely do not see any of those hundred dollar um, purchases. Sure. Well, yeah, we should, I mean, we've talked once in a while. We talk about it a little bit. That it, I mean, maybe it would be nice if it were um, re-released, you know, on a CD or something. But it's it's already too late for that, right? You you don't want it on a CD either. <laughs> hmm. Well, Alan, I, I wanted to ask uh, some, a couple questions in particular about Black Earth Percussion Group. A lot of the time we get these questions of like, you know, how do you make it when you're, you know, you just graduated college, what's the next step? How do you make a career out of this? And I remember a long time ago reading about Black Earth Percussion Group, and I think it was a, maybe a PAS interview with you. And it was like, oh yeah, we had this kind of pie in the sky dream that we would have, we would have our own farm and we would grow all of our own food and be this like self-sustaining thing. Uh, and first of all, what did your parents think about that? <laughs> uh, and then beyond that, can you tell us about uh, the, you know, how, how this group evolved? And I, I'm not sure if it was Black Earth or Percussion Group Cincinnati. It might have been the latter. I remember hearing about like all the members split like one university position at the University of Illinois for a year. And it was, I mean, everyone's getting paid a quarter of a salary. So could you tell us about uh, how you survived those early days? And, and seriously, what did, what did your parents think? What did your friends think? What did your family think? Um, my, my father really wanted me to get a Muse-Ed degree just to fall back on. You know, you should, you should have something to fall back on, he always said. Um, <clears throat> it was actually Gary's Gary and Rick's parents um, 
Um, Gary's father, Gary and Rick's father, was a, a, a very successful businessman in Chicago and had purchased um, sort of a, you know, just then purchased a weekend farm, a place to have fun at, <clears throat> um, just outside of Madison. And um, he was in Blanchardville, Wisconsin. And when we first had this idea, the idea was to that there was a big barn on this on this farm out in Blanchardville, <clears throat> and um, and there was really no other option at that moment. So yeah, we were going to go to the Cavistad family farm, and uh, we we're going to have to clean up this barn somehow, and that was going to be the rehearsal studio. So two things. First of all, um, Gary's father said. You know, there's a town right down the road called Black Earth. Wouldn't that be a better name than the Blanchardville Percussion Quartet? <laughs> so, so thanks to Gary's father. Um, uh, so, um, and then what? How did Tom Sywe heard about it? I mean, I guess we told them. You know, we were we were very busy writing. You know, typing typewriters, real typewriters, sending letters and postcards everywhere about this plan. <clears throat> and um, I mean, Tom Sywe was was the, the savior of this whole thing. He knew that that was preposterous. I mean, how long was that going to last for 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 the four of us to show up on a farm and try to convert it into a recording studio? And um, I mean, none of us had that kind of um, <clears throat> background or experience. So it was just at that year that U of I built the new music building down the block from Smith Hall so that all of the previous years, the percussion department had had just one or two rooms in the basement of Smith Hall. And as of the next year, Everybody else was moving to the new building and the whole first floor, the whole bottom floor, as it's been ever since of Smith Hall um, was given over to percussion. So Siwi, so it's not like he had to give up something he was used to. He just had this, this wonderful, um, um, generous idea. He said, you know, this sounds like a good idea. Why don't you guys come here and um, I'll give you one of these rooms. <clears throat> Um, I think had that not happened, I can't imagine that we would have made it on the, in, in this barn. But um, yeah, that's that's how it that's that's how it started. <clears throat> um, and Gary and I had been classmates together at Oberlin, um, so we had he was a year older than I, and. <clears throat> And we played so many things together, and that's sort of how how the idea came up. There, we we had heard of the Strasbourg Percussion Group, um, and and that was you know kind of really the only one. So Gary uh, Gary went, being a year older, he he left Oberlin when I was still there. He went to Buffalo, and there was a there was this thing, <clears throat> a couple of things around the country called, they were called, you know, creative associate positions. There was a big Rockefeller Foundation grant funding um, new music. And um, the reason that, that this very, very interesting program in San Diego, 
at UCSD has existed ever since. That's, that was one of them. That's how that got started. Um, <clears throat> and there was one in Buffalo and Jan, Jan Williams was there and Gary was invited to join Jan Williams and play in this, in a contemporary chamber music ensemble. And th that's where the idea sort of arose um, that, that we should make a percussion quartet, that it didn't, no such thing existed in the country and we, we, we wanted to um, give it a try. <clears throat> um, the other, I mean, the other thing you mentioned about, about a salary, you know, those first, those, the first six months, so there was no money. It was just that we had a place to go. Um, and then there, uh, in the middle of that very first year, a position came open um, up at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb where Greg Beyer is now, but um, um, then there was one percussion position and what was this? This would have been in, well, 1973, I guess. <clears throat> um, and the, the, the department had just gotten big enough that they could actually accommodate, they, they could use a second position. So Al O'Connor who taught there had heard about us down in, in Champaign and he called and said, would you guys be interested to take this second position as a group? So once again, it was just, you know, a tremendously lucky thing, a, a, a beautiful, generous idea of someone who, who, um, who, who, who helped out, just a lucky thing at the right moment. So yeah, but that was one, one small second position which we had to agree that we would divide between the four of us. But what was good about it is that it just meant that Al O'Connor ran the department. He was the one who, you know, had to fix the broken snare drum stand and order the tambourine head and assign the wind ensemble parts. And all we had to do was divide up all of the other students and, and teach some lessons and, and do some percussion ensemble. Um, but it was actually so little money that we did they gave us the option and we decided we should take the salary just on nine months. Um, because it, by the time we divided it through for four people for the whole year, it would almost, it just wouldn't have been a meaningful amount of money. So we, we took it for nine months on the assumption that we weren't gonna die. Somehow we would survive. Get rich touring those other three months, yeah. <laughs> well, we were, the deal was we were free to go as much as we could. And, and in truth, all of us were on food stamps for all of those summers. We all worked in the local food co-op. Uh, the Black Earth truck was the truck. Uh, one of our contributions to the food co-op was that we used the Black Earth van to go around to the local farms. This is hilarious. This is actually true. We actually did this. <laughs> um, you know, we'd go and pick up the honey from this guy and pick up the whatever, the flower, the ground flower from that guy and, and deliver it back to the food co-op in DeKalb. Um, and for that, we got free meals at the weekend or so, something like that. I don't know, but it was, um, yeah, that's it, sort of how it worked. There's that, there's that expression, uh, what is it? Luck is when opportunity meets, or what is it? Yeah, luck, what is, what's the expression I'm, I'm trying to say, anyone? Yeah, when, yeah, luck is when opportunity meets preparation, that's what it is. 
Uh, it sounds very much like the the early days. But you mentioned Smith Memorial Hall, and I'm I'm proud to report that the basement of Smith Memorial Hall is still the percussion dungeon at Illinois. Yeah. There's nothing nothing but percussion down there, yeah. uh, and there's I mean there's just some really cool vintage gear. They have a a lion's roar that's signed by John Cage in the basement, which we got to use for third construction. So that's pretty cool. But <laughs> I, this is like just a weird way of of segueing into. Uh, I think it originated in Black Earth and Percussion Black Earth and uh, Percussion Group Cincinnati still does it. The lions were that has the little lion stuffed animal on that. Could you tell us like whose <laughs> whose idea was that? It's it's such a cool little thing. <laughs> um, that's a, that's a Percussion Group Cincinnati thing. Um, and actually, the, even the the better idea though is that when we started when when the three of us here long time ago. Um, started playing dressur, the Coggle piece dressur. <clears throat> That's a story too, you know, um, the Black Earth group played third construction. We, we did the, um, the European premiere of third construction. It hadn't even been published. It was just then published in 1976. So in that sense, it's like contemporary with Safa, right? It, um, <clears throat> So we got a copy of it. We were playing it on tour. We played it. We we played. We were playing it in 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 Cologne, in Germany. And after the concert, this this uh, young guy comes running up to us, and and you know he thought everything was he'd never seen anything like it. It was great. He said, "I'm a student of Kago, and he's working on a percussion piece right now." Um, and he gave me a Xerox of it. Uh, I mean, I think you guys should see it. So he runs back to his his apartment while we're packing up afterwards, and he comes back with a Xerox of Coggle's manuscript of Dressur. <clears throat> um, that was the last, must have been 76, or no, well, what, 79, maybe 78, because it was the last year of Black Earth. So Black Earth never played Dressur. Um, <clears throat> But in the first year, the first year or two then of Percussion Group Cincinnati, I was tremendously interested to do this piece. And we had Coggle's manuscript. <clears throat> so, and in there, there's an instrument and he draws the pictures and all of that. And um, it's, it's a lion's roar, but it's, it's, um, it's like a cuica, you know, that he uses a dowel rod. And of course, that makes perfect sense that every, you know, every, if you start with a bongo and make a, a cuica, you can just keep getting bigger and bigger. And that actually is much more reliable than, than the string. So we always have used, um, ever since then, when Percussion Group Cincinnati does um, um, Imaginary Landscape Number 2, um, that's the piece where we're, I mean, we use it in, when we do third construction, but um, we started then in, in landscape number two. Um, I don't know where, I, why I got the idea if, again, we were probably on tour in some little, and I saw this very cute little lion and um, yeah. You know what it reminds me of though is um, <clears throat> a, a much more serious thought. Um, that one of the things that 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 Herbert Brun, one of the a number of things that were so so powerful to me and have have been a real touchstone for the whole this whole time, <clears throat> is Herbert saying um, that 
that what one wants is to not take oneself too seriously, to take the work very, very seriously, but not take yourself too seriously. And, and I think we've actually been, been successful at that. I, and I think if you think about it, how, how the career of the group, especially professional group Cincinnati, in the ways that it has a little bit of a different feel than, than, than some others, um, that we've taken the work very, very seriously, but we didn't take ourselves so seriously. So, you know, if we saw something like that, a little lion, I mean, it's tremendous fun to, um, to we've played that piece a lot, uh, that, that particular piece on all kinds of chamber music concert series I mean, for years and years. Uh, percussion group Cincinnati, um, we we would be the we would be the you know these concert series all over the country where it would mostly be string quartets, chamber music series for string quartets, and every year they would have one thing which was different, a brass you know maybe a brass quintet one year maybe a, a woodwind quintet, and that's where we found a, a niche. And it was always a big success. It was fun. It, you know, it was people who didn't know this kind of music very much. Um, but it was also interesting that that you know we we sometimes we'd get invited back, but it would have to be like eight years later because they'd have to go through their cycle of one brass quintet, one woodwind quintet, one you know. So anyway, <clears throat> I, I, yeah, you, you kind of already said this, but I just I love that performing like the most serious contemporary music and third construction of things. And there's like this little stuff line up there. It's so cool. But since we, we uh, broached the topic of dressure, we now go to Carly for a question. Alan, I'm so excited that you mentioned this piece because I, I love the piece so much and I could talk about it all day, I think. But I wanted to ask you, it's, it's great to hear that you saw a manuscript, you know, I, I assume prior to having yeah. heard it performed. And I'd love to hear what were your initial reactions? Do you remember what were your thoughts as you look over the score for this, this piece? Um, well, again, um, a couple of things come, come to mind. Bef we played it then before it was actually published. And um, shortly after we had played it here, um, I noticed that it had been published and we got the published score and what's really what was then fascinating to us is that there were all kinds of things in that manuscript where mm, he had actually, for instance, the setup, you know, which what people should be where um, in the printed score now it he made a decision who should be where what the order is. Um, if you see any video of us doing it, we're not doing it that way because in the manuscript, he said, you know, set up wherever you want, the three people, but it can be in, in any order. And we happened to choose a different order um, and that he later decided he wanted it in some particular order. It didn't seem worth it for us to redo our whole way of doing it. And there are a number of things that he actually kind of um, I would even say simplified in in the in that final version, um, 
the 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 person I'm I'm the guy who um, puts on the wooden shoes and does the dance and that person at one point you're actually playing before you start the dance thing you're playing on the wooden shoes you're sitting there playing on them with claves and in the original manuscript simultaneously with that you're playing um, like a a little recorder blowing notes on that recorder so I had to find a way to sort of hold the recorder between my knees play all of those notes and while I was banging on the shoes. And then uh, when the um, printed score came out, that actually had been simplified and that's not there anymore. There are a few little things like that. It's, it's not so important, but I've often thought if anybody like you, if you ever saw our, uh, I think there's an old YouTube thing of us, of us doing it. Yeah. And, um, and there are a bunch of things that we do differently. It's not because we, we couldn't get it together or didn't know what we were doing. It was, we actually had a slightly different story. So that's um, interesting. You know, the other thing about it is that one of the reasons, um, one of the reasons that it really appealed to me is this very thing that we're talking about is um, um, the idea of, of this balance of, of how you are taking yourself seriously or not taking yourself seriously or so I've seen many many performances of this piece which I, I have a, a really hard time with because the I, I feel that it really spoils this piece misses the point to to um, to draw attention to yourself as some sort of comedian to be uh, to be on the stage acting stupid, ag acting silly. It's not what, what the piece is about, the whole idea of, of dressage. So it's, it's the, German, um, the German word that we, we know, use in English, the French word dressage, meaning you know, horse training, this kind of uh, horse ballet for um, the Olympics, that, that, that kind of stuff. And, and what is that about? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an animal which is, in a sense, abused in this way, which is made to do ridiculous, stupid things that have nothing to do with that animal for the entertainment of others, but, but the horse simply does as it's told. So we took it that this was, again, an absolute socio-political statement. This whole piece was about people who just go about their business because doing what they're told. They don't know that they're idiots. They don't know that they're funny. They don't know anything about it. They just do what they're told, just like, just like those horses. Um, so in that sense, again, um, fun as it was to play the piece. And um, you know, another, another thing about that, I, I mean, now, these days, I think one could look on YouTube and find um, um, all kinds of things of flamenco dancing, but Boy, even back then in the late 70s, I, you know, I had to go to the library and check out, um, I guess they were one of those VHS, you know, kind of, you know, things. I was looking for things to, to get good examples of, of flamenco dancing um, so, that, so that I could sort of copy and sort of figure out how I was going to, what, what improvisations I was going to do and... Um, 
you know, I imagine even procuring all of the, the instruments and objects that are called for in the score would be a much greater challenge in the 70s than it, it was hard enough, you know, being able to go on eBay and order things from all around the world um, now, which we can we can do. Did you have trouble finding anything called for in the score? I wonder. I, I mean, I think we ended up kind of making a, a, a bunch of things, as I remember, and we've still got all of all of that, all of that stuff. Um, it's also interesting that he, um, um, I, in the, in the printed score, as you would do it, you know, he he says there's a specific little circular platform to do the dance on, which was which was not in the original original score. So I've never, I've actually had a little more freedom than most people to use a little bit more space because it wasn't um, originally thought of as being confined to that platform. Though, I mean, if you go to Spain, if you see this kind of beautiful, beautiful um, dancing, <clears throat> generally it is kind of confined to a specific wooden platform, yeah. Mm. Right, yeah. Gosh, it's, it's such a great piece. Thanks for sharing your insights on it with us. Um, Boy, you know what was a hard thing for me was uh, that that that's also the part where you have to play the the uh, coconuts, you know, on your bare chest, um, and I remember that was a big, you know, that was. And you drew the short straw. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I really, it was very clear that I was the one who was going to be the dancer. I wanted to be the dancer, and I I was going to be. Jim or Rusty or who you know Yuhas was in when we first did it, um, but that meant I also had had that part, and I um, you know I had a little bit of vanity about what it was going to look like for the dance and for the whole piece, and and having to work it out, um, you know, wearing a wearing a, a vest. How did I do that vest so that you know so that I. I I could quickly get this whole thing off, play that part on my chest, and then still put it back on you know, with, without it having to be a t-shirt or, or do the whole piece without a shirt or something. Yeah. Right, the logistics. Yeah. Yeah, so much fun. Um, I wanted to ask you because you've obviously paved the path for so many of us with everything that you've done. And I can only imagine um, what it must have been like. Um, and it's so exciting to hear all of this from you. But I always think to that anecdote um, that says, you know, there's two shoemakers that go somewhere off the edges of their part of the civilization and they enter a uh, I don't know, a village. And one of them writes home and says, total disaster. Nobody wears shoes. I cannot make business here. And the other one says, this is amazing. Nobody wears shoes. I'm going to make so much money. Um, and I can imagine that the world of percussion must have felt similarly um, back then. And I'm wondering, I, I really appreciate you sharing the, the beginning of your story. And I think it's really it's really humbling and it, it helps us connect because we often think, oh, because we're not maybe paid as much as we'd like or we cannot make a living, whether we're good at it, you know, are we good enough? Should we continue and so on? And the story that you shared is so important. But I'm wondering back in those times and now that you know how the world works um, today for the younger ones, were there any other hurdles that you uh, came across? Was it easy when you sent out those postcards? Did people react with, you know, pleasure and enthusiasm, or was it a lot of chirping? Um, how did how did the world react to you? 
we we sent those letters and postcards mostly to to composers, to composers or you know other people who were who were teaching um, in percussion departments, and I guess the fact that we were willing. I mean, the one thing we spent money on was you know, we we all we didn't have a lot of personal equipment, but we pooled all of our personal equipment, figured out what we needed to buy collectively, but we did buy a van, you know, so we had our own van and, and, um, <clears throat> and the idea that we could, we could do this pretty economically, the four of us could get in the van and, um, and write all of these little postcards and letters to composers um, that who were teaching at universities all over the country and say, you know, we're, we're passing through. Um, and um, I can't tell you how many times I, I remember, you know, we, we just, we slept always in people's houses or I slept in dorm room, you know, other percussion students, we, you know, it's, we'd sleep in their dorm rooms or um, um, <clears throat> we, we would, we would be able to say, you know, if you've got 300 bucks, you know, and we could make, we could really make these tours out of it. And that, and, and that's sort of why it was able to, to work at that time. Um, I mean, in truth, we all had girlfriends who also were somehow, you know, contributing to the rent or, or something. And <clears throat> I have to say that, that, um, I guess it's true that we we actually believed in what we were doing. We had some thought that um, it was worth keeping at this, and that in the longer run it would come to something. And therefore, um, therefore, it, it it was fine to to be sleeping in dorms or bringing tent. You know, we brought sometimes tents and sleeping bags in the right weather and slept outside and and. But it was possible to make these little tours and just ask for two or three hundred bucks, and it didn't matter because we we would just keep keep going down the road and do the next little little performance. <clears throat> um, I mean, I have to be also honest about it that that in in retiring from the university, what already three years ago now, I think. Um, you know, I thought I loved teaching. I loved the students. I loved. I mean, by by this time, the the position there, um, they left us alone. I'm just in the basement. I could do whatever I want for for a long time already. We have wonderful students, um, and though there were other things to think about, not 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 the least of which was, um, in a sort of self-deprecating sort of way. Well. I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years. One could either be very proud of that or embarrassed about it. Re really? You can't think of anything else to do after 40 <laughs> years? So, um, so I really thought that uh, while I, in, in my own humble opinion, while I was playing as well as I've ever played, that I should be able to do something else. You know, that, that I, in no sense did, did we think of it as stopping the group we're not very busy, but but Jim and Rusty and I, we still have a few things to do, and we want to do those things. And um, but mostly just the idea that I had lots of ideas, like this project with John uh, um, and the Innocents. But um, the year I retired was 
The first year after that was 2018, which was Herbert Brun's 100th anniversary and Frederick Jeffsky's 80th birthday. So there were all kinds of concerts where I could go and just play the music of Brun and Jeffsky, solo pieces and, and um, kind of relive those Black Earth years of just throwing stuff in my little car and driving around the country and <laughs> playing these concerts and not worrying too much about the, the money of it. But the, all of that is a tangent to what you were asking. Um, because I wanted to say that that one of the reasons, you know, when I made up this imaginary list of what I loved about being at CCM, what worked very well, and on the other side, reasons to think about you know, doing something else. One of them was, <clears throat> very seriously, that um, my experiences 40 years ago were in an environment so different from what your environment is now that my, my deeply um, felt advice about how I did it was beginning to be, it was beginning to be hard for me to say that to an 18 year old or a 20 year old or a 20, 23 or 24 year old. Um, I, I, I mean, it's, it's in our tiny little circles, it's, it's well enough known that Black Earth and, and the group in Cincinnati, we, we, did, we didn't do the industry kind of sponsorship thing. We, and you, you, have to, you have to think back to the late 60s when we came of age in the early 70s and um, everything about, uh, about the idea of, of what it meant to us to be an artist and separating the idea, the very you know, high, high ideals of philosophy and art from the idea of, of corporate, uh, yeah, of being a business. Um, I, I never met, we, I don't think, I certainly would say it now. I don't mean this to be judgmental of anybody else who makes a different decision and more and more so, I mean, as younger and different people are involved with all of these country com companies, of course, I know many people who now work for these companies, and they're wonderful people. They're people who went through, did their percussion degrees. They're, they're seriously concerned about the quality of the instruments and the sounds. And, and in that sense, I'm not meaning to be judgmental about it, but I have to say, I'm just of a generation where it wasn't right and it remains not right um, for me to feel like I have some connection to multinational corporations in order to do the art that I want to do. And I finally come off of my tangent back to your question, which was, and my answer was that I felt less and less comfortable giving that advice to a younger person. I know why that was right for me. I'm, I'm, and I, I'm just a little less comfortable to tell a 21 year old, therefore you shouldn't get a university, you shouldn't get a sponsorship either because, you know, because what? Because Karl Marx or I don't know. 
So yeah, it very much reminds me of the the whole Charles Ives philosophy of Ives was independently wealthy, and he thought that if you if you made money from your art, you weren't a true artist because you eventually would have to cut some corner and compromise in order to pull a profit. So that's yeah. why I don't pay y'all. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't want y'all to you know not be artists all of a sudden with this podcast. But well, Alan, I, I had a question to take us in a bit of a, a different direction here, and I'm actually going to use Brady Spitz asked a question via Facebook. So I'll ask Brady's question and then interject my little bit into Brady's question. <clears throat> Brady says, "How do you cultivate creativity in your students? Not just percussive skills, but artistry independent of instrument." And in my correspondence with Alan, getting this whole thing set up, I, I mentioned I, I always like to track your lineage of who your teacher's teacher was. And one of my teachers was Christopher Dean, who is a former student of Alan Adi. And when I think of creative, brilliant minds and percussion, Christopher Dean is probably in the top of that list every single time. So uh, Alan, could you tell us both answers to Brady's question? And then just like, what was Christopher Dean like as a student? I can't imagine. <laughs> um, yeah, you probably can't imagine actually <laughs> what he was like. You know, what was also very interesting about that is that Chris had finished his undergraduate degree and had been out working in North Carolina a bit doing whatever he was doing and then decided to come back for his master's degree. So he was already a little bit older than, than anybody else and he was re-entering academia after having been a real person. Um, and that we've had a few people over the years do that and that's always difficult and so there there was some real mm, friction about Chris who was already not just a student he was a real a real person and um, you know that that's the connection to John Lane is that um, John studied then with Chris and Chris said to John at some point you know, you know who you would probably make a good connection with. You should do your doctorate in Cincinnati. You ought to get to know this uh, uh, this Adi person. So, um, and Chris was right, obviously, about that. Um, but your the actual question. Um, you know, I really think it has to do with all the things we've we've just just been talking about <clears throat> that. Um, on the one hand, um, from from my from my percussion teachers, um, you know, pr principally Richard Weiner was teaching at Oberlin when I was there, um, and that was really what was what was so formative about that was that he was the principal percussionist of, of, the, of George Zell's Cleveland Orchestra, who came to Oberlin, came down to Oberlin one afternoon a week. Um, so I had my 55, I saw him for 55 minutes a week. And those were like the most precious 55 minutes that, that you can possibly imagine. I mean, I had a notebook. Every question I was going to ask him, every minute of my time with him had to be used in, in, in the most productive possible way because then he was going to be gone and Gary and I were going to be on our own. But what was so great about that was that it meant that the adults in my life as a student 
were the composers on the faculty. They were the ones, you know, you'd go to theory class and then after theory class, some young theory teacher would say, hey, have you seen the score to Ziklus? I mean, it's, it's only, it was just written eight years ago. And, you know, <laughs> look at look at this. Um, so the idea of even, you know, playing Ziklus on my senior recital, um, Richard Wiener didn't know anything about Ziklus or, or Stockhausen or, but, but if he would come and listen to it, he would listen to it like George Zell listened to him playing the triangle in Brahms. And that was just wonderful. What could be better than other people sort of guided me through the, 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 the ideas, the philosophy and aesthetics of these things. And then I had the, the you know, someone who was the most beautiful ear and technician of these kinds of things. And it was really a, a formative idea for the Black Earth Group and then Cincinnati, the whole idea to bring that, that level of expertise, the highest level of playing that existed in symphony orchestras. I wanted to do that for Cage and Stockhausen and for my friends. Um, <clears throat> So, so the teaching has been that way very much all, all of these years. I wanted to always make it clear that what, what I was talking about in the teaching studio was because I was doing it myself. I was a practitioner of it. Um, we've played a lot of music over these years of students, student composers at CCM. I suppose, you know, lots of, master students or doctoral students, people who were a tiny bit older, slightly more advanced, but undergraduates as well, meaning that I just paid attention to student concerts. And anytime I would hear a piece, didn't matter what, electronic piece or a clarinet quintet or something, but some kid who was doing something and it was clearly very interesting, we would ask them, come to the studio, look at what we've got here. Let's talk about this. Could we develop something? So we, we always played pieces by, you know, we, we, weren't, we weren't checking the journals to find out who won the Pulitzer Prize and that that's the people we should play. We were, I was playing the music of, of my friends or of students or um, because I, in that kind of partnership, I felt like we could really develop so, something that was was tremendously useful for for that community, for us, for that person, for the for the community of CCM, um, and I think I think those kinds of um, it just became obvious that there that there was that that the whole career, so to speak, was about something other than promoting the career. There, were, there was always, always all kinds of ideas. Um, and I think some people were maybe a little bit surprised that if, if you knew that we played the amplified cactus music of John Cage and danced coggle with shoes, wooden shoes on our feet, you know, that, that um, you know, I studied all the orchestral repertoire with Richard Wiener, and I loved that stuff, and I was darn serious about it. And that's, you know, that I mean, before you get to do Amplified Cactus, you know, I want to, your Kiji sounds like shit. I, I'm sorry, that's got to be better, you know. So, um, uh, I, I, I guess that those, those, you know, just kind of how one lives a daily life in that sense seems to have 
by osmosis um, been passed on? I remember I, I read something, it might have been from John Lane, and I know John has a philosophy sort of like this, that Alan, that you said uh, there was Bartok and maybe one other, maybe Stravinsky, I can't remember, but you said, other than these two composers, basically every piece I play like is written by a composer that I know and have worked with. And John also does very much the same thing. So that's, that's really interesting to hear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Casey, I think you had something. Yeah, I have a question that kind of has a, a continuing on the historical path that we're on. There's a, a quote that I believe John Lane attributed to you, which is that uh, it's something you said is the, the good old days of new music. And um, to say it one more time for everyone, the good old days of new music. And I didn't really know what this meant until we were doing a concert here at JMU. And we we're playing a bunch of new pieces, you know, a lot of real audience friendly pieces. And then we we're also playing ionization. And it struck me right then, like, wait a minute, the newest sounding piece, the most progressive sounding piece, the most avant-garde sounding piece on our concert is the oldest piece on the program. And in fact, the only the only piece with a, a dead composer. And so I've used your quote in all of my oral exams for both master's and doctoral students. Of course, I know what I think the quote means. I've put my own version of what it means, and I ask my students to, in a, in a way of asking a percussion literature and history question, what do, you, what do you think Al Audi meant when he says the good old days of new music? So I want to know what you think that means. Um. It, 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 it reminds me that I can be slightly tangential once again and say, um, in sort of, and I mean this again in a, in a, in a um, it's a sort of a self-deprecating sort of way that, that, that the whole idea of Black Earth and, and Percussion Group Cincinnati was an anachronism by the time it got going. So the thing that was so precious to me was this idea of, of the string quartet that, that, you know, when I was at Oberlin with, with, with Richard Wiener, we didn't have a percussion ensemble. If you can imagine going through a whole undergraduate degree and we, there wasn't percussion ensemble, what, what the hell did we do? Practiced excerpts, you know? And, um, <clears throat> Um, we didn't do four mallet marimba, uh, so um, so the so I was I was I was jealous and envious of all my friends who were in chamber music, you know, who got credit for string quartet and and wonderful things like this, and were developing these intense kind of relationships, and so this really was a, a very serious feeling about wanting to make. Um, this kind of experience for for percussionists, and we would simply have to do it ourselves. So the idea of Black Earth, um, and then you know maybe even more so, more finely honed with with Jim and now Rusty was this idea of of contemporary chamber music playing in 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 the grand European tradition of the greatest string quartets, you know? Um, well, even for Black Earth, this happens, we didn't know about Nexus, we didn't know about one another. Both groups start and 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 you know what were they doing? Well they were they really had their finger in in a very positive way, you know, on the pulse of world music. Uh, of improvisation, 
of, and then just slightly after that, you know, the whole ragtime kind of thing, all these kinds of things which, which became such fun and so important to from, the, from right from then. And I often felt, you know, there I was defining this already anachronistic idea that I wanted to be taken seriously like the LaSalle String Quartet. And it was sort of a, sort of a joke, you know. Um, but that's the kind of thing where where the music was not about, you know, as you said, that that now we have you we have more music which is really quite um, quite 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 easy to present to any audience at all. Um, you know, lots of lots of music which will be fine as a film track, you know, back some some lovely beach scene in some nice movie about, you know, there's all, all kinds of percolating, groovy, lovely kind of stuff with, you know, very cool Miles Davis chord changes and just at the right time, you know. Um, and all, and, and, you know, we, we sort of came of age, just before all of that stuff, I mean, I mean, the first time I heard Steve Reich, I heard two two of my friends at Oberlin played piano phase, and you know it was like this crazy sculpture, you know, alive, a, 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 you know, a sonic sculpture of this thing that just sat there, and and even the early Phil Glass pieces were like that as well, you know, just well. In that sense, I I must say I much prefer six pianos to six marimbas. Six marimbas already sounds like that beach background music. <laughs> Whereas six nine foot Steinway pianos metallically banging this thing out. I mean, it really was a sonic sculpture just sitting there. Um, but my point just having been that, that, that all the music we played had to do with philosophical statements, aesthetic statements, um, connections to literature and other art world kind of things, and you know the whole the whole connection of you know what what the greatest string quartets were ever doing when they commissioned a piece by Ligeti or Ludoswowski or or played cage string quartets. You know that 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 was that was the um, that was the fantasy anyway. <clears throat> cool. So to me, does that sort of sort of answer it? That um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of music with a message, and Carly mentioned this this earlier when she did her uh, miniature history lesson at the beginning. Uh, it's it's really interesting to me uh, to hear of Alan's very long record of music for social change, most recently with this project of the innocents, but obviously stretching far back further than that. And Carly found an interesting article to share with us, and then I'd love to hear Alan's uh, thoughts on especially the Innocence Project, which we've very briefly mentioned a few times, but haven't really dug into. But why don't we start with Carly? Yeah, thanks, Ben. So the article that I found is called Plans, Polonaises, and Unarmed Men, the Role of the Protest in Classical Music. This is written by Colleen Phelps of Nashville Classical Radio, and it was published back in June, June 1st of 2020, which was during the time of all the protests that were taking place, you know, nationwide and also around the world following the killing of George Floyd. 
And I thought this was all very interesting because even if we already know some of these pieces or all of these pieces and their stories, it's really nice to hear about them kind of back to back and just see a slice of the social relevance that classical music has had over the years, especially for any of us that sometimes wonder if what we're doing in classical and contemporary music really does have cultural relevance. Here's, here's a reminder. Um, and also at this time of year, we're probably all doing some reflecting on everything that happened in 2020 and looking forward, what are things going to look like? And some of us may be wondering how we can use our art to make a difference in 2021. So here's some inspiration, I hope. Um, the, first, the first piece that Colleen Felt discusses is Nabucco by Verdi. Um, going way back to the 1800s. At the time of the premiere in 1842, Italy was under foreign rule and the chorus of Hebrew slaves from the opera has been interpreted as a call for freedom, especially this line from the middle of the chorus, O mia patria si be bella e perduta, meaning, oh my country so beautiful and lost. Um, more recently, a uh, more recent use of this as, as kind of protest music, after performing this course with the Rome Opera in 2011, Riccardo Muti actually spoke out against cuts to funding for the arts throughout Italy. Um, and then after, after this performance, invited the audience to sing along during an encore performance of the chorus. So that was pretty interesting to find out. Um, another example of classical music becoming involved in politics is Poland's kind of adoption of um, Chopin's heroic Polonaise. This was broadcast on Polsky radio every day at the start of World War II. Um, this Polonaise was written in 1842 during the wave of European upheaval and revolutions and was nicknamed heroic by Chopin's partner of nine years, George Sand. Um, so by the time of World War II, this had very much become a symbol of national pride for Poland. Another really remarkable work that's discussed in this article that you have probably never heard live is called And They Lynched Him on a Tree. It's an oratorio by William Grant Still with a text by Catherine Garrison Chapin. Um, the piece is written for orchestra and it's scored for two choirs one white choir that represents an angry mob and another black choir that represents the mourners of the lynching victim. Um, this piece was premiered in 1940 and it's actually been performed less than 30 times since then, um, probably because it's so heavy and dark and emotionally stirring. Um, and just for some reference with this piece, as William Grant still was completing the piece, there was actually an anti-lynching bill that had passed successfully in the House of Representatives, but then failed to pass in the Senate. So that's where we were with the writing this piece. This was 1940, yeah, 1940. Um, so I thought that was remarkable. Um, Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time is another very well-known work. Um, as as a, you know, we all know, I think the story and political significance that the piece was written and premiered in a concentration camp where Messiaen was a prisoner during World War II. Um, the premiere took place in January of 1941, reportedly outside in the rain for an audience of both prisoners and soldiers alike. And after the premiere, a prison guard forged a stamp that, that allowed the release of the musicians from the camp. Um, this, this piece, I think we all know the, the unique instrumentation, violin, cello, clarinet, and piano. That's just, those were the musicians there in the, the, in the camp and he wrote for them. 
Um, that's what was available. And the, the piece is dedicated by Messian um, to the angel of the apocalypse who raises his hand towards heaven saying, there shall be no more time, um, with it, which is a reference to um, revelations from the Bible. Uh, let's see, there's a, a few more really wonderful examples that the author discussed. Also during World War II was the premiere of Shostakovich's seventh symphony, which is the Leningrad symphony. Um, the piece was planned to be premiered actually during the 1941-1942 season by the Leningrad Symphony Orchestra, but two weeks before the planned premiere, Shostakovich decided to try to evacuate the city during Germany's invasion, um, even though he was still finishing up the piece. However, the rail lines had already been cut at that time, so he wasn't able to evacuate and he was, you know, reportedly writing you know, finishing the second movement, finishing the piece while moving between bomb shelters. Um, and the, the piece eventually did get a premiere on August 9th, 1942, of course, later than originally planned by surviving musicians. Um, and it was broadcast on loudspeakers throughout the city so everyone could hear it as, as the Leningrad Symphony. So a few other examples um, include O King by Luciano Berrio, which was written in 1968 following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, some other quicker examples, Come Out by Steve Reich was written in 1964 when Reich was asked to create a sound collage to benefit the Harlem Six, who were six black youths who were arrested for the murder of Hungarian refugee Margit Sugar. And only one of these six were actually involved at all in the murder. So five of them were being you know, wrongfully accused. Um, and that was, that was Reich's contribution to, to help benefit, benefit their cause and their, their kind of public, public view. Uh, another piece you might be familiar with is The People United Will Never Be Defeated by Frederick Jevsky, which was composed in 1975 and is based on the Chilean protest song written by Sergio Ortega. Uh, it was written, the, the song, the original song, the Chilean protest song was written three months before the bombing and military coup of Augusto Pinochet um, and his regime. And it became the theme song for Salvador Allende's Unidad Popular. Um, in Chile. And Reshki used, Jevsky used this song as a theme for his set, this piece, a set of 36 variations. Um, they're organized into six groups of six. A few more examples. Um, okay, sorry, Carly, if I could jump yeah. in. I wanted to mention one other performance of the Jevsky. Uh, when Donald Trump was inaugurated in 2016, I know at least one performance. I saw it on YouTube, uh, but uh, some people perform this piece as a counter protest to his uh, inauguration, which I thought was very, very powerful. And I, I love Frederick Shevsky, but in, in my humble opinion, this might be his finest work. And quite frankly, like one of the top three pieces of music I've ever heard. It's, it's I think 45 minutes long or so. It's just astounding. You're not <laughs> uh, the first person I've heard say that, Ben. Yeah, and there's a, there's a score, like a score follow along video on YouTube. Um, and I mean, I've just sat there in wonder listening to it it's it's so amazing but sorry Carly to interrupt I just I had to get in my Jevsky bit because I love that piece so much <laughs> and but I have a very specific connection that Colleen Phelps who was who was a student of mine is is married to a fine pianist and organist and um, I, I I have a nice house out here in the country and I do house concerts you know I can invite 15 or 20 people I have a very nice piano um, and her husband uh, played uh, for the same reason you just said um, that in in response to the Trump 
to Trump, um, Matt Phelps learned uh, the People United and performed it here in, in my house uh, on a house concert. And you know, what was so wonderful about that is uh, Matt, Matt has this huge church job. He's a, he's a church organist and choir director. So he's a, a much uh, accomplished improviser. So the idea in this Jeffsky piece that after the uh, 36th variation, you can do a big improvisation um, I mean, this was someone who was tremendously comfortable to, to do that exactly. But anyway, we all interrupted you. So. No, it's wonderful. Well, it, it just proves the point, like this is all so relevant culturally, socially today with, with political movements and everything. Thanks for sharing that. <clears throat> so just a, just a few more pieces actually to mention. Um, Ukrainian composer, Catherine Likuta wrote a piece called Bad Neighbors, which is basically about the 2014 Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and it also kind of quotes Ukrainian folk music and dance forms. So it's celebrating the Ukrainian heritage. Um, we'll also, you know, bad neighbors is of course referring to Russia. Um, that's, the, that's the bad neighbor. And there's one more um, that, that is really, really remarkable. Composer Joel Thompson wrote a piece called The Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. It's a response to police brutality and the killings of unarmed black men. And in the piece, Thompson actually quotes the last words of seven unarmed black men who were killed by police officers, uh, Kenneth Chamberlain, Trayvon Martin, Amadou Diallo, Michael Brown, Oscar Grant, John Crawford, and Eric Garner. Um, and the structure of the piece is inspired by Haydn's seven last words of Christ on the cross from written in 1786. Um, so I do want to say this article is great and it also has some really wonderful videos that are embedded um, to, to check out and listen to each of these pieces so it's wonderful I definitely recommend searching it up it's on 91classical.org um, and it's written by Colleen Phelps so I encourage you to check it out. Well Alan with that as sort of a starting point could you tell us about a, in particular the Innocence Project but also maybe historically a few of your uh, activism projects? Well you said <clears throat> you said that you thought um, People United was certainly um, Jevsky's greatest piece. And unfortunately, I, I have to agree with you, but um, what about the fall of the empire? That's pretty good, don't you think? Yes, uh, that would be definitely one of my other top ones. <laughs> um, um, the, um, Je Frederick is a, is a difficult person most people you know know a little bit of the story stories that he's a bit, he's just very very you know he's very honest he, there there are no filters about what he's going to say to anybody about anything that was a um, a fun project that came up came about over a period of time where um he would send just in a little business envelope over a period of months um i i would kept you know he would write something and folded up like a letter and, and coming from Brussels, I, I would get this little letter and in there would be four or five, six pages of some Xerox of, and, and as he began, he said he had no idea how many pieces he was gonna make. And you know, he was coming to Cincinnati for a summer project and these pieces just kept coming. He kept writing more. I, f I forget how many there ended up. It got um, 
it got a little nerve wracking as we got very, very close to, the, and he was still writing little movements and adding to the piece. Um, that um, I, 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 I watched your, your podcast with, um, just recently with John Lane, thinking that I should, you know, have some sense of, of how you do this and what, what might be said. And uh, um, so John spoke very well about, about this, this whole uh, innocence project, the whole history of this, of this thing, of our sort of coming, coming to it by accident. You know, one thing that has happened now in recent years that we've made a much stronger effort, I mean, partly, partly the idea of my retiring from the university was to have more time that I could just be totally free to to travel more and do these things <clears throat> well of, of being able to do this for not 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 we you know we do it we sit on panels with lawyers and we met exonerees and uh, people who are working and um, but we've now done it a number of times not only in schools which is which is a moving experience to do this kind of thing for kids, but we've done it in percussion departments. You know, we play it, we you know, do a workshop for other percussionists and just to talk about this very issue that you're, you're bringing up here. And often people have, uh, somebody likes it, some of, the, some of the students like it a great deal. And, you know, is this written out? Can we get this music? Could we do it? And the answer always is, that we very much felt like we made it for ourselves and that what we would wish to be a takeaway is that this happened to be our issue, happens to have become our issue. But for so many of us, there, you know, there are so many things of, of tremendous um, importance going on all around us that we would rather have it be an inspiration for other people to think about whatever subject it is that touches them most deeply and that in a sense we we mean to a little bit light a path in this way um that you can you can make you know if you if we were a um again if you're a string quartet or a clarinetist or something maybe maybe it's a little more daunting to think about making making your own piece to play on your own senior recital or graduate recital. I think for, for all of us percussionists, though I have a tremendous history of a, of a sensitivity to, I, I love the idea of making pieces for ourselves. Um, what we learn about our instruments, what we know that no composer could know, what we can learn about. Um, you know, I mean, I, 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 I feel I know much more about Beethoven and Mozart, having tried myself to make some little piece, you know. <clears throat> Whether or not these pieces should then be published and disseminated and everybody should be playing the pieces of other percussionists, I think that's thin ice. We have to be careful about um, when we're making something just for ourselves and when, when we're making something that we wish many other people will play. So in the case of John and myself, we really wish it to be a little inspiration in that sense that, um, look, you too can find your, um, an issue 
you can find you can read about it you can find poetry you can find texts you you can you can you can get a cardboard box and and uh, you know whatever it's going to be <clears throat> um would rather have have that be the takeaway from from this um experience that's so wonderful and it, yeah it does seem like such a very personal thing well, Alan, I, I think we're moving on toward closing time here. Um, and I had one anecdote I wanted to share to, to sort of wrap up the episode, but I wanted to ask if there's anything else you'd, you'd like to share with our listeners before we move on toward wrapping. Um, do, you have, do you have 90 seconds? I, I was thinking I could play. I have something I could play that I just happen to have, I'm working on. Oh, great. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> Come with me to the piano. We know we have a we have a strict no percussion policy on this podcast. We made one exception for Steve Schick, and that's <laughs> oh good, it's piano. Yeah, that's, then it's allowed actually. It's just, yeah, that's sort of. Uh, Wow, cool. Fantastic. Um, Mark Saya, um, S-A-Y-A, was a composer who's written a lot of things for the group over, over the years. He was a student here uh, many, many years ago. And he's written this whole series of pieces called um, From the Book of Imaginary Beings, after this uh, a book of that name by um, uh, Jorge Luis um, Borges the Argentine writer, who collected all of these tiny little stories from all over the world of imaginary beings. So Mark has written over the years um, a whole series of percussion trios, some of which have piano and some, some don't. Um, and uh, this was the, the 
it's a, some years ago already, but it was the most, the, the last one he wrote. And this is a, uh, called the Submerge, which is this uh, mystical Persian bird, which is on a quest to find Sufism and you know, is collecting other birds to fly with him to the mountaintop of the Sufi masters. And I mean, if, if anything is a confused little mystical Persian bird, I, 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 think, <laughs> I think Mark caught it there. Yeah, you know, the whole piece, I mean, it's just a tiny little excerpt, but there's a little, this little piano solo in, in one moment. <clears throat> Can you describe the preparations under the hood? Yeah, there? it's actually very simple in this one. All the stop, stop strings. Yeah, it's just um, um, there are there are three sets of pitches for all of the keyboard instruments, and um, in this case, it's just um, what I use. I mean, it comes in cage as well, but when it when it says with rubber or a muted piece, what works really one thing that works really well is if you have um, bicycle inner tubing um so and and then you just you know snip a little a little a little piece of that inner tubing like this so it's a double you know what i mean you end up with a little rubber circle sure because you've cut it like that so then that you know then that gets inserted like this between the three strings and usually when when cage and in in Mark's case, usually when it's rubber like that, and it's it's sort of this George Crumb effect, right, of where you touch the strings as close as you can to the keyboard to get that muted sound. But to get that um, in a preparation, you have to do the opposite and put the piece of rubber as far back on the string as possible, right at the pins. Um, and as you, Casey, noted, you know, the higher up on the keyboard you go with those things, the more it turns into a woodblock. Um, <laughs> so all of those preparations are just just rubber. Then, uh, and, it, and in this little solo, um, he doesn't use the ones where there are rattles. There's a whole other set of notes which have a little washer and, and the more the noisier birds, the less contemplative birds. <laughs> How fun, man. That's, that's, yeah, really great. Yeah, that was beautiful. Well, as, as I mentioned, I had one anecdote I wanted to close on. And before we hit record today, uh, listeners, you won't get to hear this, but before we get hit record, I shared a little anecdote from my teacher, William Mersch. And I wanted to actually close on an anecdote from William Mersch about Alan Adi. And when I see Alan perform pieces like Touch and Go by Herbert Grun and hearing you talk about for the first time getting your hands on the score of Dressur. Uh, William Rush said that a lot of people would say why and Alan Adi will say why not, uh, which I think is a lovely, lovely <laughs> tribute to why not. So uh, thank you so much, Alan, for your, your generous time here. It's been such a pleasure to hear from you and uh, we look forward to uh, our next episode episode number 266. Thanks so much. So nice to meet you all.